Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Today, my guest is David Yamane. He is a professor of sociology at Wake Forest University. For the first 20 years of his career, uh, he focused on the sociology of religion. But since 2011, Professor Yamane has been interested in the sociology of guns. Uh, since, as he once explained, there is no sociology of U.S. gun culture. Uh, he currently studies the shift of gun culture in America to what he calls gun culture 2.0. And he writes two blogs on guns in America. One is called Gun Culture 2.0 and the other is called Gun Curious. And he has a book uh, about gun culture 2.0 that is forthcoming. Uh, Professor Yamane, thank you so much for joining me remotely today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to talking with you both. Uh, and uh, co-hosting the show with me is, is my friend Sebastian. He's a freshman on the team uh, and, and led the research for Professor Yamane's interview. Sebastian, thanks so much for joining me for your first interview. Hey, thank you, Tiger. Uh, so Professor Yamane, why don't we just get started? So you've uh, described the current state of gun research as overly epi epidemiological, overly criminological, and as a missed opportunity. Uh, what drove you to study the sociology of guns and, and how does your research differ from others studying guns today? Yeah, so I uh, was a sociologist of religion for a long time, uh, kind of got burnt out a little bit after my last book and I was at a, a kind of new stage of my career and I thought I need a new topic to study and I realized uh, in, in my 40s when I was in North Carolina that guns seemed to be all around me. Uh, it wasn't unusual for lots of different people I knew, you know, regardless of what their professional or educational background were, to have some involvement with guns, which really surprised me given my background growing up in California, where there wasn't much of a, an active gun culture. And then a kind of blue bubble followed me through uh, graduate school and into my professional life. So, you know, I, when I decided I wanted to study guns as my new project, I thought, well, I want to understand why it is that guns are so normal for this group of people, which was very different from my own background. And so as I got into the scholarly literature, I realized that nobody was really studying the normality of guns for these people, that everybody was either studying the criminal use of guns or the negative outcomes that come with guns, which you know would include uh, you know, homicide, suicide, and other injuries. Uh, and I was you know, sort of surprised that there wasn't a literature given how long-standing American gun culture is, given the huge number of Americans who own guns and given the large number of guns there are. So, you know, that's where I talked about there not really being a sociology of guns in the sense that uh, there wasn't a, a body of literature that really understood why guns are normal for a large swath of the American population. And this is what you call gun culture, right? Yeah. So gun, you know, gun culture is, you know, there are many different cultures within the United States, you know, having to do with beliefs, values, norms, uh, knowledge around different areas of social life. Uh, and so I thought, you know, if there is a gun culture in the United States, we want to understand the beliefs, values, norms, and behaviors around guns. Uh, and, you know, again, and in terms of the the legal sort of lawful use of firearms and not just the criminal uh, and harmful uses of firearms. 
And as far as you can tell, is gun culture a uniquely American phenomenon? I think that that the United States definitely is one of the rare countries in the world that has a robust lawful gun culture. You know, and we, I think we could think about and potentially distinguish uh, sort of uh, criminal cultures that revolve around guns. Um, but in terms of having a robust lawful culture of guns, the United States is uh, somewhat unique in that uh, as a, you know, going all the way back into the colonial era, guns were an important part of life on the frontier, you know, the entire colonial experience being a frontier experience, and then with the westward expansion. Uh, and so the, the practical reality of guns was there from the start, they were commonly owned. Uh, and then with the, the expansion of the country, you know, the guns expanded, and then you know, became part of American identity in terms of its association with, you know, the that early uh, colonial and Republican, early Republican era of the country. And earlier, you mentioned that the, uh, pers the perspectives on guns that you saw growing up in California, um, being in academic environments were very different from what you saw in North Carolina. Um, and right now, you just talked about you know, westward expansion and sort of the frontier. Is is there a reason why gun culture and perspective on guns are so different in different parts of the country? Yeah, I think that there, there, this has something to do with the sort of urban versus rural experiences, as well as the kind of cosmopolitanism that comes along with living in more urban areas on the coast. Uh, and so a lot of times, you know, it's just not seen to be uh, the right thing or the proper thing to be involved with guns. There's such a strong stereotype of gun owners as being, you know, kind of rednecks who, you know, live in trailers out in rural parts of the country. Uh, and so, you know, I think that some of it is the fact that people simply don't own as many guns and they don't have as much experience with guns. And then I think there's another element of it that in certain places the guns are so stigmatized that even people who have guns don't aren't very public about it uh, so you know I think now since people know me as a gun scholar who you know doesn't judge people for you know their gun ownership you know people are kind of coming out of the closet to me all the time uh, about their you know either ownership of or interest in firearms you know including someone I just you know, spoke to the other day who said, you know, I'm the last person I would, you know, people would think would be interested in guns, you know, a liberal Jewish professor from Long Island. And yet, I'm really interested in, you know, going to the range. And if you ever have the opportunity to take me, that would be amazing. So, you know, I think that, that at some aspect of the the lack of a gun culture in certain areas, you know, has to do with the stigmas associated with guns and those stigmas have to do with some of the people who people think are gun people. You, you know, Sebastian behind those two doors, he actually has a, a lot of AR-15s. Uh, uh, wow, the Prin Princeton is much more liberal towards guns than I thought they were. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm just kidding, but Professor Yamana, there's, there's a very interesting uh, both YouTube video and article uh, on the Gun Culture 2.0 site that, that caught my attention when I first read it, which is that uh, you wrote, how a card-carrying liberal professor became a card-carrying liberal armed 
American, and, and you talked about your own transformation, uh, which is also very much associated with uh, this transition from gun culture 1.0 to 2.0. So I suppose I'll try to mix both questions to you at the same time. How, how did you change? And also how did the 1.0 change from 2.0? How are they different? Yeah. So the, the, you know, I'm, I'm one of those 20% of gun owners who self-identifies as a liberal and, you know, this, uh, going all the way back into the 1980s and democratic politics where, uh, uh, Michael Dukakis was accused of being a card-carrying liberal as if this was some sort of, you know, what worse thing could someone possibly call you? And so, you know, we adopted the card-carrying liberal idea as being, you know, a kind of badge of honor. So, uh, you know, I've been involved in, in liberal and democratic politics my whole life. And, you know, the fact that I then came into gun ownership doesn't really fundamentally shift you know, that aspect of my self-identity. Uh, but, uh, you know, part of the reason that I got involved with guns personally, in addition to as, in, as a scholar, was uh, out of concern for my own uh, and my family's protection. Uh, there, I talk in that video and in that essay about a, a disturbing experience I had at my apartment complex. Uh, I won't you know, go into it much further than that. But, you know, so that defensive aspect of, of gun ownership was something that really helped my development uh, as a gun owner. Uh, and as a sociologist, I reflected on that personal change and realized that it actually is part of this broader cultural change in emphases of gun culture from hunting and recreational shooting, which is what we call gun culture 1.0, to more uh, personal protection and self-defense oriented culture, which is what we call gun culture 2.0, which is, I think, the center of gravity today of gun culture. So, uh, you know, the sociological perspective really wants to understand the the intersections of biography and history within society. And so, you know, I can't think of myself as outside of those same basic sociological processes. So the, you know, the fact that I, uh, you know, became interested in guns at this moment in time that when I felt, uh, you know, insecurity that I thought guns might be a possible response to that, that's all part of the, the day and age that we're living in. And, you know, if I was, living in, uh, you know, back in California in the 1980s and that same thing happened, I probably wouldn't have thought, oh, you know, what would be a smart thing to do is potentially explore uh, getting a gun. So, you know, I think that my own personal story intersects very strongly with the story of the development of gun culture 2.0 in that way. Uh, Professor Yamane, so as you were just mentioning, gun culture 1.0 was very much surrounded with this idea of you own a gun in a suburb, uh, in a rural area, you go out and hunt, and the new gun culture 2.0 is much more suburban, much more urban, and the idea is more centered uh, on self-defense. I should have either concealed carry into a supermarket where I should be able to go to a movie theater with a gun or, or such and so on, so that, uh, you know, the idea of I can be the good guy when bad guys show a good guy with a gun to, to tackle the bad guy with the gun. So uh, I, I'm curious to, to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on the actual sociological transformation of this issue, because I can very see clearly, maybe, you know, you moved from California to North Carolina and you realize that the norm around it, it's, it's much, more, much more normal and peaceful that people carry guns. But why did we see, you know, back from the 80s to, 
you know, 30, 40 years later to today, uh, where, you know, a generation of Americans completely shifted their attitudes towards guns, even though arguably America has become safer, more developed, wealthier, and the Overton window for political discourse has even shifted towards, you know, to become more liberal and progressive, one could say. Yeah. So I think that one of the things about the defense-oriented gun culture is that it's potentially open to a broader demographic uh, population. Uh, and I say potentially because, you know, it's still the case that if you are, you know, an older white male living in a rural area of the South, you're more likely to own guns than, you know, if you're a, a younger minority woman living in an urban area in the Northeast or the West. So, you know, that reality persists. But people who uh, are getting into guns more recently, especially people who are more interested in defensive gun ownership, are demographically more diverse than the, that older model. And it makes sense in, in that um, sort of self-defense is a universal concern, uh, whereas hunting and sport shooting is sort of more of a niche activity. Uh, and so as, as people become concerned for their own personal protection, again, as the culture shifts, then guns become more of an option for people. Um, now, the to understand the shift towards gun culture 2.0, I think you have to kind of go back before the 1980s, back kind of into the 1960s, uh, where we had you know, a time of tremendous social change in the United States, a lot of social unrest, uh, and, you know, there was a, a, at the time a rising concern about, uh, you know, the security and um, just a concern about the social uncertainty of the time. And I think this plants the seeds for defense-oriented gun culture, which then in the 1970s begins to flower more uh, and then really takes root in the 1980s when you have the the legal movement for concealed carry in the United States. Uh, and, you know, I think that to bring those two kind of themes together, if we think about last year, 2020, was the probably the greatest gun buying spree in the history of the United States. Uh, and what drove that uh, gun buying spree was social uncertainty and social unrest, not like unlike the 1960s. Uh, and you know, again, there were older conservative rural white men buying guns, but there were also a lot of younger people, a lot of racial minorities, a lot of women, a lot of people in urban and suburban areas who, you know, faced with first the COVID um, uncertainty, then the social unrest through the summer, and then the uncertainty surrounding the presidential election. It was kind of a perfect storm of, um, you know, gun buying, uh, uh, motivations among people. Uh, and again, that, that sort of highlights the the greater potential for inclusiveness of, of gun culture 2.0 than, than gun culture 1.0. Yeah, we were, uh, we were curious about uh, your, um, your recent you know, blogs about what you call the, the great gun buying spree of 2020, right? Yeah. Um, so, so what set, um, so it, are we understanding correctly that what set last year apart um, from, from other years was sort of a, um, there were more people than ever or more people than in recent years who were 
um, sort of brought into into the defense oriented gun culture that you mentioned. Is that so? Is that basically what happened? Yeah, well, I think and you know the the last big gun buying spree in the United States came uh, in late 2012 and 2013 after the Sandy Hook uh, massacre. Uh, and at the time, I think the people were less concerned about uh, personal safety, although that was still an abiding concern at the time as they were concerned with Obama taking their guns. So, you know, it's commonly said in the gun culture that, you know, President Obama is the greatest gun salesman in history. Um, but the gun sales that took place last year make, you know, the gun sales under Obama kind of look like a joke. Uh, and, you know, the buying that was taking place last year was not because people thought someone was going to take away their guns, right? Trump was president. Uh, there was no strong movement for uh, assault weapons ban or other things. Uh, and so, you know, why did people buy guns in such record numbers? Because COVID hit, nobody knew what was going to happen with COVID. They didn't know whether there was going to be complete social breakdown. They didn't know whether uh, the police were going to be negative affected by uh, the virus. And then rolling straight from that into the George Floyd protests. Again, a lot of social uncertainty around that, a lot of social unrest. And then we rolled straight from that into this hugely contentious um, political campaign where, you know, you had people on both sides, you know, the, the Boogaloo boys arming up to, you know, for, to stop the steal. Uh, and then, you know, people who were, were more liberal thinking that, you know, that people were going to try to have a coup and, you know, keep uh, Trump in power. So, you know, people on all sides of the political spectrum and all demographic groups were interested in, in accumulating firearms last year. And that was very different than um, in previous gun buying sprees. And really, I think, connected to the idea of personal protection, given the social unrest and social uncertainty. Uh, Professor Yamane, you did mention uh, Sandy Hook, and we, we also know in the past few years there has been increasing societal attention on mass shooting, whether at schools or church or domestic terrorism, uh, white supremacist terrorism. So uh, shouldn't that in some sense deter people of thinking the necessity of buying more guns? So th that's the first part of my question. The second part is, it's really interesting you brought up Obama, because it almost seems to be a feedback loop where because there were mass shootings, the Democratic administration at the time thought we need to tighten the regulation. And that made people feel like their guns are being taken away and they buy more guns and then that could cause more. And it's, it's just uh, going downhill. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the way I look at the sort of American population relative to guns is that you've got, you know, uh, you know, about a third of the country who are just completely bought into guns and it doesn't matter what happens, you know, their response is going to be, I need more guns. Uh, there's about a third of the population who are non-gun owners and would never own guns and feel like every problem, you know, that involves violence in the United States is a gun problem. But then you have this interesting group in the middle of about a third of the population. These are the people I called the gun curious who, um, you know, don't currently own guns, but are very open to gun ownership. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of the interesting uh, activity takes place because those people, you know, can, given the right social circumstances, be shifted into the gun owning side of the equation. 
Uh, and I think, you know, some of those people who were gun curious in, in 2020 kind of got off off the bench. And even I would say back in um, after Sandy Hook, I met a number of people who were at gun shows buying AR-15 rifles uh, in December of 2012, uh, who didn't currently own those rifles only because they thought that they would be banned and they wouldn't be able to to own them going forward. So, um, you know, the the availability of firearms in the United States and the connection of firearms to uh, the idea of personal protection means that anytime uh, people feel threatened, that's an available response that I would argue up to two thirds of the population, you know, potentially will turn to. Uh, and so, you know, I think that that the from the perspective of and this is I was, you know, for most of my life in that one third who was never owned a gun and never thought I would own a gun. Uh, you know, it's hard to comprehend why people would respond to a mass shooting by buying a gun. But from the perspective of someone who thinks that guns generally make a person more safe, or at least are a hedge against that insecurity, uh, then, you know, it it's a rational response of sorts, you know, in, in at least psychologically rational, you know, whether it's, you know, numerically rational, I think is a, is a somewhat different question. And, you know, that we could talk about that if you want. Yeah, it's, it's precisely as what you just said, does, is this just a common uh, collective action problem where for each individual, it is rational to buy more guns, but um, the, the resulting phenomena of the society owning more guns is, is not very ideal. I think America has, what, four, 400 million guns or something, more than a gun for each individual. Uh, it's, it's crazy. Well, so, you know, I think it's, it's interesting because a lot of times when we look at issues of, say, um, gun violence, say, you know, it's common for people to say, you know, the, the homicide rate in the United States is higher than any other advanced industrial society in the world, uh, you know, using population as the denominator. But if you use the number of guns in the country as the denominator, we actually have a pretty low rate of violence, right? So we might, we can sometimes think about turning that question on its head and say, not saying, why is there so much gun violence in the United States, we say, you know, there are 400 million guns owned by 80 million gun owners. Why is there so little gun violence in the United States? I mean, why aren't people <laughs> literally shooting each other every single day? Uh, and, you know, the nature of gun violence in the United States is I don't mean to trivialize it at all, because if you're a victim or if you live in a community that's victimized by gun violence, you know, this is a, a terrible thing. But the the gun violence in the United States is very tightly focused, um, you know, uh, like the the large majority of the violence. I mean, obviously, you know, one of the things that is so disconcerting about uh, mass public shootings is that, you know, they they are more seemingly random. You know, you don't know when that's going to happen. You don't know where that's going to happen. Uh, but that's a small piece of the gun violence puzzle. You know, the biggest piece of the gun violence puzzle, you know, is extremely concentrated among particular social groups in particular areas. Um, you know, Andrew Papachristos, a sociologist, studies the networks of gun violence. And you know, the if you're involved in certain networks, your likelihood of being a victim of gun violence is much higher than if you're outside of those networks. So, you know, I like to say um, 
that the problem the problem with averages is that no one lives in the United States, right? We all live in particular states, we all live in particular counties, we all live in particular cities, we all live in particular neighborhoods. And when we get down to that neighborhood level, uh, you know, the risk of being a victim uh, of gun violence can be extremely high. You know, some places like St. Louis is like Honduras, and some are really low. You know, that if you live in Plano, Texas, which is a gun-rich area, it's, you know, you might as well live in Switzerland in terms of the levels of gun violence that, that exists there. So, um, you know, the United States is a huge, diverse country, and, you know, looking at national population statistics, I think, can be kind of deceiving in that sense, because gun violence can be so localized. I'm curious about the distinction you drew between um, gun buying being psychologically rational versus numerically rational. Um, and specifically, well, because in the, you know, starting in the 80s, there was the right to carry um, movement and nearly all states by 2010 had right to carry laws. So anyone who applied for a permit or most people who applied for a permit could get one. And now some states are going for permitless or constitutional carry environments. Uh, I think 13 states have done so. How does the, um, well, because people want to have guns and have them visible because of the perceived uh, physical safety. Um, but how, how does the increased visibility of guns um, end up affecting discourse? And how does it end up affecting volatility? Um, if there are, like what we saw in, in Kenosha, um, with uh, Kyle Rittenhouse having um, having a weapon and and, and using it um, in a very in, at a very inappropriate uh, moment and in a very inappropriate environment. Yeah, so I'd say you know I would distinguish between the the concealed carry movement and concealed carry laws versus open carry, uh, and you know there's a lot of division even within the gun culture about the propriety of open carry and. You know, there'll be people who say, look, I, I respect people's right to open carry. Like, I don't disagree with that they have a right to open carry, but it's it's stupid and it scares people and it can lead to negative outcomes. So we don't need to do that, particularly given the fact that people can legally conceal carry, you know, in many places and at many times. So, uh, you know, that that right to carry movement, I think that you mentioned that started in the in the 1980s and a little bit before that is really a, a right to concealed carry, uh, which, you know, I think can be distinguished from, um, you know, the right to open carry. And some sometimes those get conflated. Uh, but, you know, in, in reality, for example, in North Carolina, it's never been illegal to openly carry a firearm. You know, it used to be that if you were an honorable person, you would in fact openly carry your firearm and only criminals tried to conceal their firearms. And so we've seen an interesting reversal now where, you know, um, you know people think it's probably better to carry concealed. So, um, you know, I think that's that's a long way of, of saying, you know, that that open carry is something that not even the, you know, sort of majority of people that I know within gun culture 2.0 advocate people doing, whereas concealed carry, you know, is much more universally recognized as something that people can and should do. Uh, now, the question of the, the psychologically rational versus the, I don't know if we say actually or empirically rational or what the right way to talk about that is, um, you know, that I think 
guns make people feel safer, right? People who have guns, it makes them, it makes people who don't have guns feel less safe. That's a separate issue. But people who own guns, it makes them feel safer. And, you know, I think that that sense of security, psychological security is nothing that we should sort of um, minimize, right? It's important for people to have a sense of psychological security, you know. Um, now, whether guns make a person actually more secure, I think, becomes a more difficult question, right? Like, if you are in an abusive relationship, or if you're an alcoholic, or if you have a history of depression in your uh, family, right, there are any number of different conditions under which you might think that having a gun is going to make you safer, but actually might make you less safe. Uh, and we know that, uh, you know, for all the talk about uh, gun homicides, that two thirds of all gun deaths are the result of suicide. Uh, so, you know, I think that that when we talk about do guns actually make people safer? You know, on the one hand, I want to steer away from this notion that, you know, every gun makes a person less safe uh, and towards something that says, let's look at the conditions under which owning a gun would make someone more safe versus less safe. Yeah, because do how often do um, maybe defense-oriented gun owners actually use their firearm lethally? Is it, um, are they just confident because they have it or are they confident because they know they can use it? and are intend to if they need to. Yeah, well, this, this is an area of research that's a, a big mess. Um, there's been debates over the number of defensive gun uses there are in the United States, so, you know, all the way from people saying it's, you know, 50,000 a year, all the way up to millions a year. Uh, and some of that has to do with, you know, definitions, because from the perspective of gun culture, you know, you don't actually need to discharge your firearm in order to successfully defend yourself with a gun. You may just have to let the person know you have it. You may just have to brandish it. Uh, and so, you know, there's the number of defensive gun uses in the United States in any given year is substantial, I would say, you know, without trying to quantify that number. Uh, but but I think, again, from the perspective of defensive uh, gun culture, it's not simply a matter of I have the gun and I, I can or will use it, but there's a whole uh, kind of mindset that changes that uh, affects a person's behavior, how they navigate through the world. Uh, and I think that most people who concealed carry aren't sitting looking for uh, an excuse to use their gun. You know, it's not like a dirty, hairy, go ahead, make my day kind of situation, but they're, you know, actively seeking to avoid, you know, situations in which they may have to use, you know, the, a gun to defend themselves because there are huge, um, you know, psychological, economic, social costs to using a firearm in self-defense. So it is a sort of tool of last resort, you know, in that way. And, you know, I think sometimes people who are against concealed carry sort of say, oh, you know, very few people ever who concealed carry ever use their guns. So concealed carry isn't necessary versus an approach that says, you know, thank goodness, very few people who concealed carry ever have to use their guns. But for the people who do, you know, they really needed it at that moment. Professor Yamane, you remind me uh, when I was talking to a political theory professor uh, uh, 
who studies political theory of money, and he was saying about fiat currency. He said people focus a lot about all the crashes we've had, but the, the fact that we can just print money all day and have so few crashes over the past few centuries is quite amazing. So it, it kind of reminds me of, of what you said. But I guess the, the question is, it seems to me that the research, the empirical research on whether uh, you owning a gun at your home makes you actually safer is a little bit unclear. So we, we always hear the 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 liberal kind of parody of the situation, which is that, okay, you have a gun, uh, where do you put it? Do you put it in the safe or do you put it on your table? Because if you put it in your safe, when the, when the robber uh, actually comes in, you don't have time to actually go unlock the safe and shoot him. Uh, but then if you have it on the table, what if your child just, just does it? So uh, it seems to me, uh, just to make sure I understand correctly, empirically saying it's very hard to, to say whether it actually makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, they say, you know, there's been studies that are very commonly cited that say, for example, if if you have a gun in your home, you're 2.6 times more likely to be a homicide victim than if you don't have a gun in your home. Uh, but that, you know, simple statistic needs to be unpacked in so many different ways. You know, for example, you know, that doesn't mean that you're 2.6 times more likely to be killed in your home you know, or to be killed with your own gun in your home. You know, most of those people who have guns in their homes are killed outside of their homes with by somebody else's gun, right? Which may sort of lead to people thinking, well, what else is going on there? Because then, you know, we also know that people, you know, I'll, that having an arrest record dramatically increases your likelihood of being a homicide victim. Um, having a history of drug and alcohol abuse. I, when I re first read that study, I you know was living in an apartment for the first time in a long time, and you know not owning your own home makes you five times more likely to be a homicide victim. And I'm sitting there thinking, great, now I'm living in a rented uh, unit here. So, you know, does that make me five times more likely to be a homicide victim? Um, you know, and uh, by design, these kind of multivariate statistical studies sort of pull variables apart to try to isolate the the causal influence of the variables independent of one another. But in reality, we're kind of holistic people, right? So perhaps having a gun in your home makes you somewhat more likely to be a homicide victim. But if you own your own home and you're not a drug addict and you haven't been in an abusive relationship before and you haven't, you don't have a criminal record, then you're less likely to be a homicide victim, even if you have a gun in your home. Right. So, you know, I think that's one of the ways that those statistics kind of create some frustration for me, because it's easy for people who want to engage the issue from a political perspective just to say that gun in the home three times more likely to be a homicide victim. But that's just the starting point. Right. That's not that's not a conclusion. I'm curious about the work you've done about uh, reactions to gun violence in churches. Um, how do congregation leaders, how do worshipers who might, um, well, maybe this connects to what you were saying about feeling safety in, in your home, they might feel safety in a religious community. Um, I think you call it the, the body armor of Christ. Mm. How do they react to that gun violence in, in their religious spaces? Yeah. I think, you know, this This is kind of like uh, taking those individual level responses I was talking about up to the organizational level, you know, and if people uh, don't have any experience with guns, they're more likely to see guns as dangerous and they're not likely to respond to, you know, 
uh, uncertainty by looking at guns as a solution, whereas if you have experience with guns, you're likely to see them more as protective and to respond to uncertainty by looking to guns to make you more secure. I think this this happens at the organizational level as well. So uh, religious uh, congregations that, that tend to be um, from sort of more uh, politically, more I'd say theologically and politically conservative uh, backgrounds, you know, are much more comfortable with an armed response to uh, security threats. Whereas uh, congregations that are from more sort of theologically liberal and politically liberal um, uh, traditions are less likely to look at armed responses. Uh, but even you know there, I think that that. Um, you know, you see some overlap, you see some uh, Jewish synagogues who think, you know, we might need armed security to protect ourselves. They just would look to hiring professional security as opposed to, uh, say, a more uh, theologically conservative Southern Baptist congregation who might say, hey, everybody bring your guns to church Sunday. Right. So, um, you know, a lot of times I think that people who are are personally or organizationally organizationally um, um, uneasy with guns will oftentimes just outsource the the guns to other people. Right. So it's not like if someone's breaking into my home, it's not like I don't want an armed response to that. I just want to pick up my phone and call someone who has a gun to come and deal with the problem as opposed to my dealing with the problem myself. Uh, so, you know, I think even people who are, you know, obviously there are some people who want to disarm the police as well and, you know, not have a military. But I think your average American non-gun owner, you know, wants the police to have guns and uh, for us to be able to call them when we need them you know, in the same way that they want to be able to call someone to clean their house when it's time to clean their house and mow the lawn when it's time to mow their lawn. I'm interested, this might be a little bit um, off the topic of, of guns and more towards your background in, uh, in, in religion. Um, I'm interested that you mentioned not only um, politically conservative or liberal, but also theologically conservative or liberal. Um, what, what does theology uh, have to do with, with uh, being comfortable with guns? Yeah. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, theological conservatism is a big sort of uh, topic, but, you know, one of the things that at least say within the Christian tradition uh, that I know best, you know, people who are theologically conservative, um, you know, tend to uh, see the world as somewhat more um, as, let's say fallen perhaps might be a way to describe it, or they recognize more the presence of evil in the world. Uh, and, you know, if you see the world as more fallen with, you know, and more uh, imbued with evil or evil spirits, uh, then you're just much more comfortable with the idea that those things need to be actively resisted uh, or even actively fought against, whereas if, you know, theological liberals tend to see the world in somewhat more benign ways, they tend to see human nature uh, as somewhat more benign. And so, you know, I think the, the notion that, you know, forces of evil need to be resisted actively are less common among those theological liberals. So, you know, the, the notion that when you're, you know, in your congregation, you know, that something bad could happen and you just need to be prepared for it and that's how the world is that more characterizes i think the theologically conservative or uh, traditional congregations 
Um, I guess another another environment where um, we see sort of an unexpected um, violence is uh, schools, um, and uh, but schools um, they they don't have you know that sort of theological maybe also the community component. Um, how uh, what are reactions to gun violence in schools, and how how are they different? And um, do you have any 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 thoughts on that? Yeah, I think here we again see the the importance of uh, sort of ideological perspectives on what the proper way to respond to these things are. So, you know, I think in areas that are more uh, politically conservative, that you see the the notion of needing to have an on the spot armed response um, as more popular, whether that is having sort of armed uh, resource officers or arming teachers. Uh, arming principles, uh, whereas places that are, I think, more politically liberal, less comfortable with guns, you know, think that the, you know, they don't think bringing more guns into schools is is a good response to school violence. So I think, you know, a lot of our political responses to, you know, how do we solve problems that have to do with guns are really fundamentally shaped by how do we feel about guns in the first place and how we feel about guns in the first place can be profoundly shaped simply by our own personal experience with guns. Uh, you know, the people who have more experience with guns and their childhood or in their daily life are much more, they, they think of guns as less dangerous. You know, they're much more comfortable with, uh, with having guns around or use potentially using guns. Whereas people who don't have that same experience with guns, either in their childhood uh, or in the, you know, among their friends, you know, tend to, to see any introduction of guns into a situation as just making that situation more dangerous. Right. And that, again, you can see how that could build up to in a religious congregation, in a school, in a workplace, uh, all the way up to, you know, our national politics and, you know, whether we should make uh, guns harder to get and use or make guns easier to get and use. Professor Yamane, I'm pretty uh, um, impressed by, I, I would say, inspired by this sentence you just said, which is that politics seems, uh, policy responses seem to be uh, largely dependent on people's own lived experiences, which stem from their own upbringing, culture, communities. So in that sense, because of the sociology of guns uh, that we've seen in America, it's almost impossible, it seems to me, to regulate guns or push for legislations that are based on you know, scientific research, per se. So you, you would never be able to convince someone from a conservative state that taking the gun away from you uh, is actually going to make you safer. Just let, let's even say that there is studies that will show that, actually, that everybody agrees on, all experts agree on. You'll still not, not be able to do that because it's so shaped fundamentally by ideology, lived experiences, and culture. Yeah. And I think, you know, we see this in uh, sort of the cultural cognition perspective. The, uh, you know, some people at Yale Law School, Kahan and Brahman, you know, talk about this building on the work of the anthropologist Mary Douglas, all the way to more psychological perspectives like Jonathan Haidt's work on the righteous mind. Uh, you know, the notion that human beings are basically informa rational information processors, it's probably a fundamentally, you know, misunderstanding the way that human beings sort of navigate through the world and understand things. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that, that it would be hard to think of 
uh, a an research finding that would be so powerful that it could overrun people's sort of experiential understanding of um, of how the world works or what the right thing to do is in the world. Um, but you know, I think on the other hand, and and you know, hate makes this point that diversity of opinion, you know, may help us get closer to the truth. Right. So, um, you know, if we could have people coming from different perspectives trying to look at and talk about the same thing, then we might advance collectively together. So, you know, if if, um, you know, you come to me and you say, wow, if you have a gun in your home, you're 2.6 times more likely to be a homicide victim. And then I could share some of my understanding of what that means. And then you could ask me some more questions. I could try to understand how, you know, you're, you're seeing that, you know, that through that, those differences of opinion, you know, we can, we can move forward more than, you know, you coming into, you know, the legislature and saying, we need to have, an assault weapons ban because 2.6 times more likely to be a homicide victim if you have a gun in your home. I know you are not a uh, public policy professor, but a sociology professor, but I would still love to hear your general thoughts on policy because uh, during the, I think 2020 uh, Democratic presidential primary uh, politician, Beto O'Rourke very famously said like, you know, how is we're going to take your AR-15 you know, on the debate stage? And some people applauded that. Some people said that that's just a horrible way of united, unifying the country. And on the other side, we, we see is a recently elected Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, uh, who is this co Colorado Congresswoman um, who basically says she will uh, uh, carry her pistol into the Capitol building. So we see this almost uh, very polarizing views, but probably more extreme views than, than before on, on people's stance on uh, what guns should, should, what role guns should play in, in our society. So do you have any insights to these two politicians' behaviors? What are your thoughts on them? Yeah, well, you know, I think that we, people are increasingly discovering that um, and actually, I, was, I should I can show I was just reading to review this book called The Gun Gap by Mark Jocelyn, who's a political science at Kansas. Um, you know, and he he begins by talking about how uh, in the 2016 presidential election, uh, the the gap between how gun owners voted and how non gun owners voted was 31 percentage points is the biggest gun gap in you know measurable history uh and the gap between gun owners and non-gun owners is the same as or exceeds some other gaps that political scientists you know spend much more time looking at like race gender social class um you know and so the the political differences between people who own guns and people who don't own guns are considerable and you know merit further investigation and you could almost take O'Rourke and Boebert as being emblematic of those, you know, that gun gap, right? You know, do you think that, again, having more guns makes us better off and safer or does having fewer guns make us better off and safer? Um, and so that that creates a, a challenging situation to make progress on the gun issue because in order for us to collectively sort of move forward, we we can't have these massive divides between people, right? Um, but, you know, how do you get beyond such a massive divide? Well, I mean, I, I would probably be teaching at Princeton if I could give an answer to that. 
it's, but in general, in terms of the very bird's eye view of policy, uh, which part of the spectrum would you fall under? Would you, would you still say, I agree with uh, tougher background checks, uh, gun, gun sale, you know, those gun fairs, uh, ID checks, trainings, all that stuff. Because we always uh, watch those uh, small videos from, from Vox or other left-wing uh, media sources that says, you know, look at in this country, like Switzerland or something else, I forgot, European countries that, where they have uh, mandatory training for people who use guns and it's much safer environment, all that stuff. So uh, wh where do you think should be the sensible line of policy? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I find myself kind of becoming, you know, the more, it's the libertarian side of my liberalism tends to come out a little bit more when I think about these issues, because um, I'm not certain that uh, government regulation of gun training would yield a very good quality of gun training, um, you know, in the same way that um, government regulation of your ability to get a driver's license doesn't do much to make you a very good driver. Uh, you know, it's kind of a minimum standard that very few people don't pass. Uh, and that's you no, know, you know, I think concealed carry is in a lot of the shall issue states, right? It's there's a minimum standard that, you know, they want people to pass and make it very easy for people to be able to get concealed carry licenses. Uh, and that, you know, I think that's probably an appropriate role for government in that because the government doesn't know anything about how to teach people to use firearms well. Uh, and so, you know, having said that, you know, I, I do think that it's incumbent upon, you know, gun owners to be extremely responsible with their firearms, uh, to store them as safely as they can, to know how to use them safely, to ensure that nobody who's unauthorized gets access to them, whether it's a child, a distressed family member, a criminal. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of things that that can and are promoted within the gun culture that make, um, you know, can make us safer with firearms, you know, that we have to figure out ways of living safely with firearms. And again, experientially, you know, you know, tens of millions of firearms owners every year never shoot themselves or somebody else with their guns uh, that, you know, in an unintentional way. So, you know, in, in a certain way we have, you know, figured out ways of living, you know, safely with guns, if, you know, if only we could do it a little bit better, right? But, you know, again, it's hard, hard to know how to reach out to, you know, most people who are shot and killed with guns are shot and killed intentionally, right? Whereas things like, you know, automobile deaths, those are almost all accidental, right? So how do you, intervene in a situation where someone is intentionally trying to harm themselves or someone else with a firearm, right? That's not necessarily something that can be uh, legislated at the state or even at the federal level, right? It's already against the law to harm someone else with a firearm, right? And, you know, suicide is a really, uh, you know, kind of challenging different sort of story, like, you know, people are, are you know, very bent on doing harm to themselves, you know, it may be hard to intervene in that. Although, the, you know, I should say that there are some groups within gun culture who are actively trying to work on, 
on reducing suicide because they're, you know, it affects people within the community. Um, one of your one of your points is that it's it's difficult for people outside of gun culture to understand um, the mindset inside of gun culture. And so um, if I'm not mistaken, you take your uh, sociology of guns class every year to uh, to a shooting range. Is that right? Yeah, as uh, you know, the before we even meet as a class uh, in the classroom, we go uh, typically to a gun store and range where they get uh, some education on gun, different types of guns, mechanisms and gun safety. And then they have the opportunity to shoot uh, on the range uh, if they want to. And so how do you see um, discourse on guns changing if more people could come to understand that? Because while the most publicized examples of, of, of gun use are, you know, when it goes wrong, when, when there's a death, when there's an injury, um, and that's the most, uh, <clears throat> those are sensationalized almost. But how would discourse change if more people um, could come to understand that you can actually, one can be, a responsible gun owner, um, and if they had more people had the experience, like like your students have in class. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I, I should always like to say up front that you know I don't take the students to the range to try to convert them into gun owners. I take them because I feel like having that experiential understanding of what it feels like to shoot a gun, uh, you know, is important as we move forward to talk about sort of uh, gun culture and other aspects of, of guns and social life. Um, but what one of the biggest things I see among my students, particularly, well, you know, the students who are who are familiar with guns and are, you know, like guns, you know, they just have a good time. But, you know, usually about two thirds of the students don't have much experience with guns. Uh, and many of those, you know, uh, have serious reservations about the role of guns in society. And what I notice among those students is, you know, uh, almost a visceral cognitive dissonance, you know, because they come into it thinking guns are bad, guns are dangerous, guns hurt people. And then in the experience of shooting the guns, they feel like, oh, this is fun. This is challenging to try to make the hole in the paper where they're pointing the gun at, or wow, this feels very powerful, right? I feel empowered by the fact that I can use this dangerous weapon, right? I feel responsible because of that. Uh, and so they're working out in their minds, their sort of prior dislike of firearms with this feeling of this isn't so bad. Right, and some of them, like you know, they they talk about in their reflection papers about how they're trying to actively resist enjoying shooting the gun, um, and so, you know, I think putting that people in that position where they have that dissonance gives them the foundation for learning, right? Because you try to work help people work out their understanding of that experience and why they have that experience and why they come in with certain assumptions uh, and it doesn't fundamentally change people's orientations you know i think that these these orientations towards guns risk danger um, are really really deeply ingrained in us both sort of psychologically and culturally um, but it does soften people i think around the edges you know that that people can even if they don't say, I would like to own guns myself, or I feel like it should be easier to get guns, they can understand why someone might take that position, 
right? Someone might enjoy shooting guns or owning guns or why someone might feel, you know, guns make them uh, feel safer, uh, you know, or why people, um, you know, would take the kind of political positions they do with respect to guns. And again, I think that softening, um, you know, creates a condition under which people can talk about an issue that, you know, people on both sides care about. Uh, and, you know, we, we come through those classes, you know, I think with a, a better understanding of different positions, you know, positions different than our own, even if our positions are, don't change ourselves. And, you know, I think that's important. Apart from uh, going to a, uh, you know, handling a gun, is there any other advice maybe you would, you would give to um, college students? Because um, college campuses, you know, always are predominantly uh, skew left and there's a lot of resistance to guns, you know, like, like you were saying, those sort of uh, um, the, the assumptions you, you come into school with, uh, culture, that are culturally ingrained. Um, what sort of advice would you inject into the conversation? Um, and um, do, you, do you think a lot of uh, the, the opinions of, of college students are maybe naive or, or misinformed? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, college students are supposed to, you know, have limited understanding of those things because, you know, we, you have limited experiences. Uh, and, you know, I think, um, one of the things about a liberal education is that it liberates us from you know, the binds of our limited experiences and backgrounds. So, you know, whether that is learning about people from another part of the world, learning a different aspect of history, you know, learning from a diverse uh, group of uh, fellow students, you know, all of those things can help liberate our, our minds from, you know, the bondage of our own past and, and experiences. And so I think with it, same thing, you know, with guns, if you don't have any, you know, experience of or understanding of guns or what would make them attractive to people, then, you know, make a concerted effort to go out and, and to meet people and to understand, you know, people who, you know, are, are gun owners. And I think, you know, I encourage the the people, I mean, I, I have to encourage them less, but people who are kind of pro-gun or gun owners who end up in college are in the minority anyway, as you said. So they're exposed to other people's views, you know, a lot uh, more easily. But I, you know, I encourage that too, to say, you know, don't, you know, don't just say, you know, Beto O'Rourke is just a gun grabbing liberal, you know, try to understand like, you know, what, where does that come from? Where does that sense of we need to get these things out of our society? Where does that come from? And, and take your fellow citizens, you know, sincerely held beliefs seriously, even if you disagree with them, which, you know, I think is one of the sad things about our contemporary politics is, is, you know, that, seems to be harder and harder to do. Uh, Professor Yamane, before we gradually wrap up the interview, I, I think it would be nice to touch on a little bit of maybe philosophy or political theory before we go, because uh, in, in your uh, Gun Culture 2.0 website on the front page, uh, you said that your approach to Gun Culture 2.0 is, is inspired by a quote from philosopher Spinoza, which is, I have uh, sedulously endeavored not to laugh at human actions, nor to lament them, nor to te detest them, but to understand them. And I guess this goes back to uh, what you were just saying. So we, we talked a lot about sociology today. Are there other 
uh, political theorists or philosophers that you think may have inspired you a lot, who, whose political philosophy you identify with and you think would be nice for uh, our listeners to know about? Because I remember earlier in the interview, you were talking about the libertarian side of liberalism from you. So. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would really be getting out of my depth to try to recommend, uh, you know, political theorists or philosophers to to try to uh, look at to understand this. That that quote uh, from Spinoza actually was given to me by one of my uh, faculty members who was a social theorist uh, and empirical sociologist as well, Reinhard Bendix. Uh, you know, and he, you know, really kind of conveyed to us the importance of um, bracketing our own personal judgments as a way of um, getting out and understanding the world better, right? And so, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, there's there are differences within sociology, within political science, you know, all the social science, science is now about uh, what role our values should play in the work we do. And some, you know, the idea of the scholar activist, that there's no difference between my scholarly work and my political activities. You know, that's that has a lot of currency now. It's had a lot of currency probably since the 1960s, maybe even all the way, you know, back to, to Marx, who said the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways, but the point is to change it. Um, but, you know, I think there's the, the stream of social science, which I feel more comfortable working within, is that stream that says, you know, in the first instance, we have to understand the world and understand how the world works. And if we're too caught up in judging um, the world or trying to correct the world, that that could impede our ability to understand it. So, you know, for me, understanding first, you know, which isn't to say that, uh, you know, it's not a form of um, sort of cultural relativism. I mean, I think at the after engaging in empirical study, we can judge something as being better or worse. Um, but if we go in with too strong of a sense of better or worse, you know, it can affect our ability to understand. So, I mean, I think that's, that's uh, probably some sort of philosophical position. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that, that uh, my, my approach really is to try to understand what's happening on the ground. Uh, and you know, leave leave the uh, ontological navel gazing to people in the philosophy department. Uh, Professor Yamane, I'm a big fan of your work and what you're doing right now, but I also feel like, don't you think it's a little bit uh, unrealistic to uh, or idealistic to expect most Americans to to do what you're doing, which is to keep an open mind and actually understand things and update their beliefs based on truly understanding the other side's lived experiences and empirical evidence. Um, especially, I mean, you were, we were just talking about how 2020 saw a huge uh, gun buying spree and associated, we, we also saw people buying, I don't know, Bitcoin or, you know, things like that, where, where we literally see uh, the, the public, the mass, no longer feel like the, the expert class should tell them what they have to do, right? And, and we don't even have to go into gun regulation, even something as simple as mask wearing, a lot of the people in the country see that as something that is uh, limiting their freedom and liberty. And that is something completely manufactured by the expert class to uh, curtail their freedom, uh, which as irrational as we may think it is, it is not irrational to, to them. And it, it seems that it is very hard to, to push for any sensible reasoning uh, in, in today's day and age. 
Yeah. And I, you know, I do, I, I feel like I oftentimes kind of get it from both sides because, you know, from, you know, people who are more on the anti-gun side, you know, um, you know, they, they just want to kind of pound, pound, pound and more, more regulation, more regulation, nothing good comes of guns. Look at England and Australia, et cetera, et cetera. But then, you know, from the other side, you know, there are, there are people who, um, you know, are just so so committed to their own positions that are pro-gun positions that they don't really care what I have to say either, right? So, you know, I think if you, you know, the question for me becomes, is is that middle ground, you know, broad and deep or is it shallow and, and thin, you know? Um, and I like to think that it's broader and deeper than we may think uh, because a lot of public discourse gets dominated by people on the wings, right? You know, we can't help but hear from Lauren Boebert and Beto O'Rourke, but, you know, where is where is the mass of the population at? Is it in some more, uh, uh, you know, openness to understanding? Uh, and, you know, I think that's this day and age, it's, it's hard to be optimistic about that. Um, but I'm, as people tell me, I'm more optimistic than a lot of people. And so, you know, I, I feel like we can keep hammering away at this. Although I have to admit, I didn't, I haven't finished reading Jonathan Hates the Righteous Mind. So I don't know whether there is any hope for us. I mean, it may be that our our fundamental ways of understanding the world are so rigidly set in our early histories that, you know, there is no hope. Uh, so, but let's not conclude on that note. We have to find some <laughs> other note to conclude on. So, what what would be the optimistic path you think we could uh, go towards? So, ideally, uh, what should politicians do? What should the media do? What should scholars do? What should the people do? Yeah, I mean, I think that that everybody needs to try to understand people who are coming from a different place than them better. And I feel like you know, given my forty two years of life you know, completely outside of guns and gun culture and my 10 years of life inside of that, you know, that I have kind of a foot in, in both uh, and that, you know, I, I can do some translation. You know, I feel like it's one of the things I try to do, you know, is, uh, you know, adapting my scholarly work to broader audiences is, is to try to interpret each side to the other. And if, you know, more people were, were opening to listening and, you know, having people who could act as translators, you know, I think that we would be, would be better off because, you know, I think they're like nobody who's, you know, either pro-gun or anti-gun is like pro-homicide or pro-suicide, you know, that everybody, you know, finds those things to be negative. And it, you know, the question is just how can we come together to find some sort of common ground from which we can fight? you know, against those things. And they're, again, small uh, areas of optimism, you know, uh, on those fronts. Uh, and, you know, hopefully those continue to grow. And, you know, hopefully, you know, and as the pendulum swings back and forth, you know, maybe we've gone to the far end of polarization and, you know, the pendulum will start to swing back, you know, more towards some, some common ground. If it continues towards polarization, you know, I'm just, you know, fortunate that I'm more than halfway done with my life. And, you know, I'll just leave it to your generation to live with the consequences of that. Exactly. That's what I think all the time as, as, <laughs> as, as well. Uh, so how can people learn more about your work and also 
uh, we always at, at the end ask our show to conclude um, with the policy punchline, since that's the name of our show. So what would your punchline be? Uh, maybe much more optimistic. So, Yeah, well, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, my two blogs, uh, Gun Culture 2.0 uh, and also Gun Curious. I try to, to post on both of those regularly. And you can also link to some of my more academic work, um, you know, from both of those sites. Uh, and my policy punchline, this, this part you may have to edit out because I'm, it's like, it I, doesn't have to be even about policy. It doesn't have to be punchy at all. Anything. It doesn't have to be policy or punchy. Then what, what how is it even called a policy punchline? <laughs> the, 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 the name. So the, the, our, our show has evolved in such a way such that, um, punchline implies something short and witty. But our, we do long-form podcasting that lasts an hour and a half, two hours. So it's completely ant antithetical to punchline. And yeah. we've broadened our scope beyond policy. I mean, we, we talked about sociology today. We have uh, philosophers on the show all the time. Which, so, so it's definitely uh, not policy nor punchline anymore. So <laughs> Okay. I mean, I'd, I'd say this is also stealing from, from my uh, blog is just, you know, light overheat. Uh, you know, the gun gun debates are so heated in our society um, that we it impedes our ability to understand guns and understand each other so you know, i think if people you know look for light you know either in understanding the world as social scientists or try to find the light in those people with whom we disagree you know i think the world would be a better place professor yamane thank you so much for joining us today this is just a wonderful conversation thank you so much Oh, thanks very much for having me. Uh, and Sebastian, thanks so much for doing this interview with me. I hope you enjoyed uh, your first ever Policy Punchline interview. So, yeah. Certainly did, Tiger. And thank you, Professor Yamani, for being on the show. Well, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. You may follow us on policypunchline.com, iTunes, Spotify. You can watch the YouTube video. Uh, you can also uh, follow Professor Yamane's uh, work. He also has a book uh, upcoming about Gun Culture 2.0. His two blogs are Gun Culture 2.0 and Gun Curious. This concludes this episode. We'll see you next time.